I think the magic is really this kind of multidisciplinary, um, you know, working together, uh, you know, kind of rub some of that rubs off on, on each discipline. And that, mm-hmm. that's, I think, where you really see the magic happen. Multidisciplinary. Yeah. This is the Yield Coach Show, episode 36. Hey, everybody, this is your coach, Ian Brown. A few announcements. Yield Coach Capital has opened its doors to investors looking to multiply their money while working with yours truly and our varsity investment team. We recently closed our 170-acre Gainesville, Florida industrial track, and our limited partner investors are on pace to make two and a half times or more on their money. That opportunity is gone, but don't miss the next one. Be sure to join our investor list and never miss a deal again. You can join our investor list by the portal, which is in the show notes of this podcast. It's in our Instagram bio link, and you can also do it at yield-coach.com. If you join our investor list, we will get you the free gift, 107 questions to ask a deal sponsor, and a discount to our employee to entrepreneur video course, which is packed full of information and case studies to kickstart your investment success. Now is your time to take the field. I'm your host, Ian Brown. Every episode, we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, thought leaders, inspirational guests ready to open up and share the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your own success. Very excited about today's guest. We have Ms. Marie Mays. I'm actually sitting here, for those of you that are watching, I am in Pullman, Washington at Washington State University, and we have been very fortunate to get Miss Marie May. She has a BA and an MBA from Washington State University. She is currently associate professor at the WSU Carson College of Business. She mentors and coaches student entrepreneurs in all phases of business development, and she teaches many courses, including launching new ventures. Marie, welcome. Thank you. Did I hit the high notes on that? That's the high notes. I'm also the director of the Center for Entrepreneurship. I did not mean to undercut you. Thank you for the <laughs> clarification. Uh, well, thank you for your time, first and foremost. Sure. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to be um, my brother's boss and running this program. I've been the director of the Center of Entrepreneurship for 10 years. Um, for that, I taught at University of Oregon in their business school, um, taught strategy and marketing for them. And I came back to WSU uh, 2013, so 10 years ago. Um, earlier, before I was at Oregon, I worked with uh, my predecessor, Dr. Jeremy Rose, in this role. Um, sort of as second in command and got some great experience doing that with him. And so when I, we looked, our family looked to move back to Pullman, um, this was a great opportunity for me to head up the center and grow and expand our programs. So business, uh, entrepreneurial pursuits, these are, you know, obviously business colleges have been around a long time, but I feel like concentrating on entrepreneurism, I feel like that's a little bit more in vogue, maybe gaining some popularity with students. I could be wrong. It's probably a better question for you to opine on. But um, where did you where did you kind of pick up your passion for business and entrepreneurialism? I've already turned the mic, so you have the answer. <laughs> I've been involved in business uh, for a long time. So uh, I got my undergrad in political science. So I worked in political PR for a little bit. And then uh, gradually transitioned into working in the marketing side. <clears throat> so I did some marketing consulting for uh, when we lived in New Orleans. I worked for a small marketing and communications firm. And I did some consulting work for the city of Kenner. And conversely, did some work in Seattle for Seattle Children's Hospital and for the city of Seattle, kind of in my early career. So uh, I needed a job that had some flexibility uh, due to my husband's career. And so that was enabled me to stay career relevant. Um, by doing some small consulting projects. And so that sort of tip, dipped my toe in it. And when I worked at um, the marketing PR firm in New Orleans, uh, my boss at the time uh, had gotten an MBA and he had really encouraged me. They thought that was the next step for me. So when uh, we came back to Pullman kind of in the really early years, uh, I started the MBA program then um, really at his encouraging. Mm-hmm. So with your concentration and more of like the outbound communication and PR and relationships, um, was it that that was kind of like your early impetus into business? So it was on that side of it, mm-hmm. the outbound side. Okay. It's interesting because um, 
This is, I believe you're at your episode 36, and we've had a, a, a wide array of entrepreneurs and thought leaders and educational people. And I don't think, I think you're the only one so far that like your, your genesis is more in like PR marketing. A lot of people that have been on the show came from like a parallel or nearby an industry like commercial brokerage, banking, accounting, um, maybe they were builders. Mm -hmm. And then they decided to kind of pivot over into behaving like their clients. Mm -hmm. uh, but I haven't really had many people that kind of started on like messaging, branding, avatars, communication, and, uh, and came up from that. Um, what are some of the courses you teach today? So I teach uh, new venture planning, which is Entrepreneurship 485 in the fall, and then uh, new venture launch in the spring, which is what I'm teaching right now, which rolls into our business plan competition. So all the students in that course prepare what they will submit to the business plan competition. So we're right in the throes of that right now. Nice. Yes. The presentation around us tomorrow morning. Mm. Right. Early. So with the, um, you know, with the, with the modern day student, I have, uh, I have some questions that I often ask, but I, I want to set them to the side for a moment. I have some other some other ideas since I have you here. Um, I think it's unique. We're sitting here in spring of 2023, you know, uh, Washington State University. What are some of the the challenges in, in educating like today's students where you're in primarily, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, undergraduate studies. Yes. So your, your undergraduate students are generally 22 years old or under generally. I know some are slightly older. What are um, you know, like some of today's challenges? I was a high school teacher over 10 years ago. So I remember some challenges, but I feel like maybe they're different today. I can think of a couple of things that just didn't exist. Um, but what would you identify as some of the some of the some of the hurdles or challenges in in educating today's business students? I would say it's more challenging to engage students now than it was earlier in my career. And I think that's largely due to coming out of COVID. So we had, we were online for the very end of a spring. So say spring break to the end of the school year and then one full year we were online and we worked really hard to make that an engaging online experience for them. Uh, but it was still di very different from their face-to-face -face education. And WSU is primarily uh, uh when we're face-to-face, -face, we're a face-to-face -face university. So we have a, a really good global campus, online campus that we've had for a long time. And we have online MBA uh, executive and regular online MBA in our Carson College. But our face-to-face -face programs are, are really, that's an important part of who we are mm -hmm. in terms of delivering education, especially to 18 to 22 year olds. So coming out of COVID, I would say our students have had to learn how to re-engage face-to-face in their education. So they've had to learn how to work with each other. They've had to uh, learn how to uh, prepare. Uh, they've really had to up their work ethic. Um, they're really having to learn, I think, professional skills again, like how to be on time for things, how to um, manage multiple projects at the same time, uh, how to manage due dates and things like that, I would say. Students uh, are man managing the content fine. It's really just sort of managing the complexities of life coming out of COVID that I feel like this group, the 18, 22, 22 year olds is having more trouble with than they maybe did pre-COVID. And I think that's a, a great answer. And I hadn't really thought about COVID as being like a related challenge to what how students are doing today. Mm -hmm. And um, I think most of the people listening, you know, were on Zoom calls and did the teleconferencing and work from home. And I think a lot of us know the, like the pros and cons of that. Um, I think it's hard in today's age to hold attention. Like when I wrote that question, I was thinking, it seems to me like even versus when I taught high school, which now that I remember is 2005, it's been a little while. Um, but I was teaching high school from 05 to 07 and coaching football and coaching track. And when I had the kids, I pretty much had their attention for the most part. I mean, I was a daydreamer in high school, um, but I didn't have like, I didn't have the competition for my attention like kids have today. And um, I do have other educators in the family. And from what I understand, you really in today's environment, you can't really require a student to not have a phone in class. I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but like uh, a buzzing or an alert, even if it's not distracting the whole classroom, which it very well may be. I think like 
even notifications. Your laptop's probably on Wi-Fi while you're sitting in class and you're taking notes. So I didn't, I never had to wrestle with um, 30 faces or whatever it was looking at me. And I was teaching history and social studies back then. I didn't have any competition from like something in their pocket or like an alert on their iPad or surface or laptop. Um, can you speak to that at all? Like just kind of like the distraction of technology and like the, the challenge of holding like the student's attention today? I think it is something that we work with. So especially for the lower division classes, I teach seniors almost exclusively, juniors and seniors. Um, but for our lower division classes, I think the faculty are, are finding creative ways to in to engage them with their technology. So they're using their phone to do things or they're using their laptops or we're breaking the um, class up into say small sections. So we might talk for a bit and then they might do a group activity and then they might do something, especially in the lower division, do something on their phone, take a survey or mm -hmm. something like that. And so we're not expecting them to sit for an hour and 15 minutes without interruption and just listen to the, the old school lecture that they might have, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, but I will say for the upper division students, there's also a point where you just need to be really firm. So if we have a guest speaker who's coming and, and the guest speaker has, you know, incredible experience and a wealth of knowledge to share with my students, I'm going to require them then to shut their laptops, to put their phones away and to really give our speaker their full attention. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, if they're presenting, I want them to be giving each other feedback. So in our my class, they're going to be practice pitching quite a lot. And I want the class to be supporting each other and giving them feedback. So then I really do need them to have their, their technology turned off mm -hmm. and for them to be engaging with each other and giving feedback. So I think there's times where we can be using it and using it for good. And then there's times to tell them that, that they need to put it away. Do you think in the balance of those facts, do you think that the technology overall is helpful to the student? Or do you see it as more of a distraction to the student? I'm not sure in for many of these things that we often just see them as sort of value neutral. So, but our job then is to make the technology, use it to the best we can for the purposes mm -hmm. we need to use it for. So rather than saying, oh, technology is bad or good for them, or how can we make it good for them? or manage it so that it's not bad for them mm -hmm. rather than having, I mean, many of us have maybe opinions about that, but in terms of the way we approach it in education, it would be more how to manage it for good. I think that um, there's an expression that's common in law school and it might be common in, in higher education, but I didn't hear it until law school. And I had professors tell me, don't fight the fact pattern. Mm -hmm. And you may have heard that expression before. So it's like, and, um, and so like in law, you're reading, you're reading case studies a lot of times, and there's a fact pattern to the case, and then there's a holding from the judge and there could be a dissent. And what would happen in class is all these hands would shoot up and they'd be like, well, well Mr. So-and-so, Professor So-and-so, what if this? What if that? What if? And, and a lot of times the professors would just stop you and say, don't fight the fact pattern. The fact pattern was... Bessie kicked over the lantern and burned down Chicago or whatever it is. And we're going to discuss torts. So we're going to you know discuss train accidents. Or we're going to discuss uh, constitutional issues. And I think there was a tendency for students to be like not liking the judges holding or not liking something we were learning and trying to like um, move the facts around it with the what if. Mm -hmm. And um, and the teachers were pretty firm, like don't fight the fact pattern. And I think the reason why I bring that up is when I asked you about technology being like essentially good or bad um, for the, for today's students. And, and you were like, well, you were like, well, I would take a neutral position on it. And then I would like tailor my education and content and everything to the fact that it exists. And that made me think of like, don't fight the fact pattern. Fact pattern is the kids have the iPhones, they have the services. It's they not have, going away. Not going away. Right. So it's like, no. don't worry so much about is it bad? Is it good? Maybe think more like scientifically, like here are some characteristics that could be negative. Here are some characteristics that could be positive, but we're trying to get information and human development through this landmine. And that sounds negative. How can we do it with the technology like sure. in, in their pocket? Right. Um, yeah. I think that, I think the technology thing is interesting because, because there's some, so many different types of learners. So mm -hmm. I had a hard time, even to this day, holding my attention for long, and when I say long periods of time, most of our classes, we were on a seven period schedule, 50 minute classes, mm -hmm. five, five, zero. I think we got a 15 minute break in the morning, lunch, and then a 15 minute break in the afternoon. 
And I felt so beat up at the end of like a high school day. And I was like, God, even if I liked the teacher and liked the class, I just like could not hold my attention. And so I think by using some of the technology you're talking about and getting them interface with like devices and mediums they already like, higher engagement and higher progress. And um, and I, you know, I went to high school in the 90s and it was kind of like a little bit of the end of that era of like the big, loud, extroverted jock did kind of well, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like the more meek, introverted deep thinker might not always prevail, if you will, in high school. Whereas like now I think through like technology and just the, I feel like culture is a little more introspective and layered and dynamic. And I feel like there's way more opportunities for different types of students to kind of rise up and have a voice and learn in groups. Um, interesting. Well, I will get to another question. I've got one here. Um, and it's kind of on the same vein. So a lot of my educational, my core educational experience is now over 10 years old. And and, and you have insight because you mentioned you've been in education for decades. So it's like you have insight from even like predating mine. What are some advantages? Because it's easy to get negative. Oh, this is, you know, standard today. But what, but what are some advantages you think that a student today has over a student 10, 20, 30 years ago? Um, are there are there some advantages for the modern student? That's what I would say. Absolutely, they don't have to type. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was yeah. tell. I was tell them because we had still had to type when I was in college, and so I'm very happy. They should be very happy. They yeah. don't have to type anything. But your touch typing is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> no, it never was really right. Good. But I'm glad I don't have to do it anymore. Um, no, I think, and I, for many of them, they take that for granted that they have the advantages of technology or even um, things like spell check and, and, you know, Grammarly and all of those kinds of aids to help them. And, uh, I would say kind of back to your learning styles point, we're much more aware of students having different learning styles and ways of taking in information. And we and I'm in the teaching academy and we had a, a teaching academy book club where we talked about universal design for learning. And the idea is that there's lots of different ways people learn. And so you want to provide uh, like you would maybe provide like, for, for example, in the physical environment, you provide a ramp for someone who had a wheelchair, but that ramp might also help other people who need to walk with a cane or other things like you don't just do it for that one group. Right. Mm -hmm. So in universal design for learning, we're trying to do like, we might do things that were auditory rather than just always doing something with like, like we might allow them to make a presentation and do a written plan, or they might be able to make, even make a podcast for a deliverable for class. If they'd rather speak about what they know rather than just always having to say, write an essay. Mm -hmm. So I think for them, in this generation, even I would say in the 10 years, um, since, you know, my, my children are, you know, out of college in good ways as well. I would say we're much uh, more willing to allow students to present their knowledge in different ways. And I think that's a really good thing for them, especially for people that didn't fit in whatever the mold was of that university or school, uh, that there's just more paths to uh, showing that you're knowledgeable about whatever the subject is. I think we see that in, we definitely see that in like different forms of media and media is so like uh, niched down now. Mm -hmm. So it's like, um, you don't really have to have like the biggest, loudest voice. Like I was talking about, you know, like the Johnny Bravo character from like 1990s high school, um, you know, and by having like a, a truly captive niche audience, you know, the information goes deep. Like what we're doing now, those that make it to the end of this show and we, we tend, don't worry, we, we, we don't run too long. But it's rare in today's days, and, and that's why the podcast forum is really, I think it's fascinating. It's rare that somebody gets to feel like they're they're sitting in a room with us for maybe up to an hour, maybe half an hour, depends on how, you know what we talk about. But to have someone's like focus and attention for that long is almost unheard of. And mm -hmm. in, in a day and age where the average person is going to scroll or be stimulated by thousands of images and catches and sounds and colors and movement, um, it's just almost overwhelming. And I, I do, I do think that some of these like old school kind of like, dare I say intimate formats, um, I feel like there's a slight resurgence or at least there's an appetite for people to kind of get like an old school communication. That's a little bit deeper. It's not just like a, like a catchphrase or a buzzword or like a, a bright infographic, like, um, stories, 
story format. And I don't consider myself a great storyteller, but the story format has been around since we were, you know, sitting around campfires and drawing on caves. And there's something in our like reptilian DNA that can grab onto a story. I can think of things that have changed my entire trajectory that were quite, I just remember they're just, they were stories and they might not even been about the person that was the narrator might not have been speaking about themselves. It could have been a cautionary tale. It could have been a tale about who knows what, and they might forever change me in that format. Um, but I do think to your point about different mediums and different ways for students to rise up now. Um, and, and just like just different opportunities for, for creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do like that because now as an adult, as a kind of a business leader, I'm more of like a, like a maverick real estate investor. However, when I collaborate with others, what I what I've gotten better at, but I wasn't trained to do, but I do think the new students would be better at it. I've learned what my shortcomings are. So kind of like, what's your superpower? And conversely, what is not? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, what am I below average at? What am I above average at? And then the expression like work hard at what comes easy. I've embraced that and kind of coupled that with like, am I working in my core competency most of the day? And am I making an effort if it's something that I truly dislike and it doesn't cost a lot to outsource it? Am I doing that? And I've gotten better at that. And I feel like the students coming out now by having different forums and mediums and group projects and this person's a speaker, this person's a writer, this person's great with media, this person could host a podcast, um, all these different things you can do. It forces the collaboration that, I've just kind of learned the hard way on my own where maybe you can come out of this business college and be like, you know what? I'm really good at like crafting catchy emails or great media or logos or branding. I'm a great communicator. No, I'm not a great speaking communicator, but I'm a great written communicator. I can create images that draw attention and I can, whatever it is. And I, and I don't think I have to say I was a history major, so I just didn't, didn't know, but like, I don't think I had a lick of self-awareness when I got out of undergrad. And I, I feel like, Maybe today's student this has a, maybe a little more self-awareness. And I think culturally people think about like the layers of humans and like self-awareness in general um, more than maybe in the 90s and before and, and older education. Um, okay, I've got another one for you. I got some custom questions for you. Um, this other one. The You've seen a lot of students for decades in the concentration of business and entrepreneurialism. What would you say the main characteristic or main characteristics are that would separate your your high achieving students? And I do have to admit that when I say high achieving, it might not just be in the classroom. It might be like these are the ones that they were high achieving either in the classroom and or outside. So like they finished your program and you read about them or they come they update you later. You're like, wow, that person took this information it doesn't what what are some of the characteristics that seem to kind of separate the the wheat from the chaff you've had you've had decades of kind of coaching and mentoring business students so mm-hmm. I was curious what characteristics you think prevail yeah um one of the things that uh i often see uh is when students bring together um two sort of disparate areas of their education uh, I worked for years with engineering students. So we had a course where we taught the engineering students and the business students together in entrepreneurship, and they worked on projects on multidisciplinary teams. And what I found is, especially for the engineering students or any of the other students across campus or so our center serves students of all camp, all majors. So you could be a business of art student, say, and, and you work with us a little bit, or you could be neuroscience or engineering, or, and you want to do something entrepreneurial, then we can help support your, your moving your idea to impact. So what I find with the students who are not business undergrads, but put some business acumen on top of their primary discipline, so engineering, say, um, that they are particularly successful Hmm. because they're they're not expected to have some of the communication skill sets, maybe, that we can help them develop by practicing, by pitching a bunch, by uh, really just in the business plan competition, the one the most successful students practice a lot. And they enter other competitions outside of our competition, so University of Washington or other places, and they pitch a lot. And so they they have to do things that they wouldn't normally be required to do in their engineering classes. And then what I hear back from them, so I just talked to last year's winner of our competition not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of them is working in, uh, she was a bioengineering undergrad, and she's working in sales, in scientific sales, and into the hospital uh, research environment. And she's just doing awesome. 
And they're just delighted with her because she has all of the technical skill sets, the scientific acumen, but you add a little communication skill set on top of that and she's just doing great. So I'm really excited to see those students. Uh, they just excel. They do They do really terrific. So uh, the other winner, she's in civil engineering in the same way. So we've got civil engineers who are great communicators and know how to collaborate. That's a, a really magical combination. Yeah. Um, for my business students, I would say it's definitely the ones are the most successful in terms of venture launch who don't fall in love with their technology. Uh-huh. Who care more about creating a scalable business and are willing to uh, pivot their technology as they need to, whether that was to get through COVID or that's to find ultimately product market fit, uh, are the ones who are the most successful. And we also, so I also work with your brother on the National Science Foundation i program. And there we take fa- typically faculty or graduate students who have ideas that they've created in their lab. And then we help them do a bunch of customer discovery or talk to customers about their idea. But they've spent a lot of time in the lab and they really love their idea. And it's hard for them when they go out and talk to customers because the customer may or may not like their idea. But they've developed, they've become endowed with their idea. They love it. Mm-hmm. And so the program is really valuable because it gets them out of, we call it out of the building or out of their lab to talking to people and finding out about complex sales channels and hospitals or, you know, wherever it is that they're selling their product or service. So my my most successful business students are really the opposite of that. So they're the ones who are more willing to work with the product team to make changes to, to take that business to the next level. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, we're recording this. If it sounds funny or it looks different, we're recording this on campus. And right, you can't see this on film, but right behind our camera, I'm looking at a biochemical pathways. I don't even know. It's an exhibit. It's a large, it's a large map of biomechanical processes, and it is making is making steam come off my head. It's so complicated. But what's funny is as you were talking about your business students that had like atypical. Um, experiences after college. Well, I'm looking at this map and I'm thinking, well, you mentioned people that have like a lot of like STEM or science and mechanical backgrounds. And then when you layer on the business acumen and some, it's like, these are the people, and maybe it's because I'm staring at this biomechanical pathways map, but these are the people that are going to think like, okay, I don't fall in love with it. It's empirical. It's a yes or no. I toss it. I change it. I move on. You know, I'm not saying there's no um, impassioned scientist, but if the scientific process is telling you no, well, then you throw it out or you try again or you test and measure. And um, versus like kind of like your um, more of my traditional podcast guests, it, they're just, you know, a diehard passionate person about about one thing. And they're just going to like like Captain Ahab, they're going to get out there and like spear the white whale. Um, so it's, I did not expect you to give that answer, but I told, it makes like total sense as you say it. Um Okay, interesting. So the the layered people, I, I will say just as like a personal corollary, um, people, I have three primary backgrounds, uh, appraisal, brokerage, and law. People that don't know me and they're coming from the outside and they're just kind of looking in, there's a lot of assumption that the law part mm-hmm. was like kind of critical to my mm-hmm. success, if you want to call it mm-hmm. that. And I'm not a big deal. I'm just a regional investment guy in, in Jacksonville, Florida. But let's say somebody's looking in like, oh, what's that legal background? When in reality, one of the best things I have is that, and I told Asa, my brother, I don't even know if I would do it again because it was just so against my uh, personal traits and my strengths, but commercial real estate appraisal, I ran profit and loss statements, pro formas, cash flows, comped out properties, lease abstracts, super analytical, typed it all up in a very like tight, truncated, not wordy, not flowery, very business style correspondence. And I did that for like five years. Mm-hmm. And now I can jump into a property PL or value a property or just get into the nuts and bolts, the grittiest parts of like investment real estate. And, and it's totally contrary to my personality. I just learned it young. But what I'm thinking about is your point about like, your your math and science type people you layer on this ability to like sell or think like a business person like a lot of my success has been literally combining two seemingly disparate things like okay uh the legal nuances of the purchase and sale agreement versus like the super gritty lease abstract and and profit and loss statements Mm -hmm. and things like that yeah i would say that's true as well for my business students so when my business students are on 
teams that have engineering students or art students or comp students, and they learn a little of that as well, that also makes them more successful. Mm -hmm. So because they have to, it stretches them a little bit. Uh, it improves, you know, their skill sets in a lot of different ways. So I think the magic is really this kind of multidisciplinary, um, you know, working together, uh, you know, kind of rub some of that rubs off on on each discipline. And that, mm -hmm. that's, I think, where you really see the magic happen. Multidisciplinary. Yeah. All right, Marie, I've got to I've got to make you close your eyes for a moment. You're going to go back in time. And you're, you're going to go back to a time when you have your, your current experience as we sit here today, but now you are enrolled. And I, I know you told us you were a liberal arts major. You were not a business major, but let's just pretend for my hypo. You have today's experience and wisdom with your decades in, in business colleges. And now you are a, and now you're a student. Um, what would you, what would you do as a student today with, with your wisdom of today, with your current wisdom of today, and you're an enrolled student how would you conduct yourself or behave in a way that you think would give you an advantage uh, with the wisdom you have today? If you were a student, just going back in time, what would I do? What would you do with your, with today's wisdom to allow yourself to be essentially the best business college student that you could be knowing you're, you know, you're trying to make a difference or launch your product or whatever it is you're trying to do Because what you have now is decades of watching students with different characteristics some rise, some fall, some go far, some fall short. But with that perspective, if you were able to jump in the seat and you have to tailor it to yourself because you have your own core competencies and superpowers. But like, you know, if you could go back and now you're in the seat and someone else is teaching, um, what would what would you do to get the most out of the experience? Might be another way to say it, knowing what you know now. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I was a first generation undergrad. We didn't even call it that then because so many of us were, right? It wasn't really a thing. Uh, but I, I, I sort of fell into public relations and, and political science. I was interested and passionate about things, but I, I didn't have a <clears throat> clear guidance on what I should do or study. Mm -hmm. And so I think if I were to do it again, I would have done, I would have studied business and I would have done finance. Uh, I'm quite interested in finance and I uh, would have probably gotten an, even if my trajectory is pretty similar to my own now, I would have got probably gotten an MBA sooner and then gone back on a PhD. Um, whenever I hear my um, colleagues present research papers, in particular, some of my finance colleagues present research papers, I think they're quite interesting. And I think I would have enjoyed the research process. Um, my current position doesn't involve research, so I'm a clinical faculty. Um, so I just do teaching and service, but I would, I think I would have really enjoyed that aspect of it. Mm. Um, or if I worked in industry, I probably would have enjoyed, uh, on the finance side, more of the, um, like portfolio evaluation rather than the client facing side. Interesting. Yeah. So my perception of you is outgoing and affable and approachable that's how i see you but it's interesting that you're drawn to the pursuits of in my opinion more of your introverted analytical underwriting numbers driven we actually flip so like i was stuck i shouldn't say stuck that's how i felt about it though i just showed my hand i was doing excel spreadsheets and cash flows and valuing hotels and apartments and strip centers and golf courses and industrial parks and and i am forever grateful that i spent all those years doing that work however it cut against my uh, my natural core competency and here you went you know kind of the pr marketing communications angle and as you look back and reflect you could have been doing underwriting and <laughs> portfolio work and yeah and finance and yeah exactly so that's interesting we kind of like just crossed crossed over <laughs> yeah we don't always end up where like what is the perfect thing for us i i will say on the the more extroverted side uh, I do really enjoy my interactions with students. So I would still would enjoy being a faculty member and the fact that you still get to teach, mm -hmm. even if you're doing research, I, I probably wouldn't have wanted to have been, you know, hold away in the basement somewhere doing um, financial analysis without having some time with students. Cause I do really enjoy seeing them grow and develop uh -huh. and having that time with them. So a mix, I think of, yeah. of having the research and the time with students would be good. Yeah, you kind of have the somewhat of the best of both worlds right now. You, you're not in a basement with like a green visor and doing your long form calculations, you know, get the human interaction side. Yeah. Well, prior to um, Marie agreeing to do this uh, podcast interview, I spoke at one of, it was actually my brother's class. If you guys didn't catch this, I probably wasn't very clear. My younger brother, Asa Brown, teaches here at Washington State University and Marie is his boss. I'll say 
I was his boss. You're not anymore? No, I'm well, not. Let's just yeah. pretend you are. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she, Marie let, let's say Asa had me come and speak yesterday and I had some students. So I did a presentation kind of like my yield coach presentation. We ran a couple hours, had some Q and A and I invited the students to go on Instagram, follow yield coach and DM me a message if they have a question they wanted me to ask on the show. So I will say Hunter, last name undisclosed, um, Hunter from the presentation class, he did send, he did message me a question for you. Um, and it's not a question I would have thought of. And I'm kind of glad he said it. And the stuff you said earlier about COVID and technology, I would have never thought of this. It's been very interesting to me. But Hunter is a current student here at Washington State. And his question is, have you seen the stigma around women in business change over time? Any experiences where being a woman has helped or hindered you? So I had not thought of a gender-based question um, and with time evolution behind it. So, but one more time, have you seen the stigma around women in the business world change over time? Any experiences where being a woman has helped or hindered? So to answer the first question, absolutely. I would say um, almost to the point that there really isn't, isn't the stigma of being a woman in business. Um, it's certainly harder to raise capital still. So being an entrepreneurship, I'm, I'm aware of that, that it is much harder for women to raise capital than it is for men still. And I think we're there's some good academic research that I'm not doing, but I know of, uh, about uh, women in confidence and the way that they pitch and some things like that that we're working on, trying to help um, our women founders to present more confidently and help hopefully increase their, grow their networks and increase their um, abilities to raise capital. Uh, so I would say no stigma, but still harder to raise capital. Mm -hmm. uh, but I will say there is a, a growing uh, network of women in the entrepreneurial communities who are committed to supporting each other. So uh, we're a corporate members of Spokane Angel Alliance, and uh, I, I go to those meetings when I can in Spokane. And um, the, the community of women who attend those has grown even in the last 10 years since I've started going to those and um, really good about reaching out. Uh, if some of a new woman comes to that event, they're really great about reaching out and including them and, you know, um, making them feel welcome uh, in what was, I think, historically largely, you know, accredited investors in many cases were largely a, a male dominated. Um, yes. And so uh, that is changing as well. Uh, I would say just even women are more likely to be uh, angel investors than they used to be as well. Um, to take that at least with a portion of their portfolio mm -hmm. uh, to invest that in a, a startup company. And that's a, something I have enjoyed doing as well uh, as really expanded my startup uh, finance understanding by doing it myself and uh, putting a little of my own capital at risk. So um, I would say that to your, so the second question was how has being a woman helped or hindered me? Yes. More or less. Yes. Okay. Um, I would say not even so much in business, but because I am the age that I am, uh, I early in my, uh, life in my twenties, even, um, so my husband played football in the NFL and, um, in the early days, uh, I was still, uh, worked, which was, was not very common for uh, spouses of NFL football players at the time. And, uh, was still quite interested in finance even then, uh, in a personal finance and I was often met uh, with like, I was rebuffed essentially for expressing interest in uh, our family's personal finance by uh, financial advisors and others. And um, I, I persisted and I made sure that uh, my voice was heard or that my questions were answered. And um, I will say that I, I'm grateful even now that I sort of learned to have my voice heard and mm -hmm. um, persisted in speaking up and um, you know, challenging, um, asking lots of questions and um, wanting to know why. Um, I think it has served me and our family well to have both of those voices heard. So I always encourage women, regardless of whether they're working in business or not, to be sure that their uh, you know, personal uh, opinions about their family's finances are um, are being heard and that they're not delegating that unnecessarily mm -hmm. um, to the male member of their family. And so uh, that's something I think I'm really passionate about. And um, so, so I have, that's been sort of a downside, I think, but I, I feel like I stood my ground. I think you did too. <laughs> I think that um, 
I was just reflecting on what you said about the capital raising and um, women's participation in. Mm-hmm. So I just raised, I just closed the property. It depends on when this airs, but I, I closed the property essentially April, April 1 of this year, 2023. And we raised a million dollars in limited partner equity from accredited investors. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to round a little bit, but approximately a third and maybe about 30% came from women mm-hmm. and they're accredited and they were very decisive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, um, one wasn't even particularly old. I don't know her exact, actually, I do know her exact age because I have all of her information as an accredited investor. However, I believe she was under 35. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I believe, as I recall, was an attorney. She was well-paid and she qualified under the income mm-hmm. qualification. Sure. And, um, and the other female uh, was at a different stage in life and she she was accredited under the net income mm-hmm. qualification. And the only reason I bring that up is what's interesting is I think as we're talking about diversity in education, we kind of touched on that and diversity of mediums of education, but as you have different people of all different walks, genders, races, everything, graduating and moving into these positions, here I had a uh, minority female invest a good chunk of money as a credit investor before the age of 35 in my project. Mm-hmm. And um, I think to your point, it's hard to say. It's a little bit of conjecture. I don't know if 20 years ago that would have been the case. You know what I mean? I don't know about 10 years ago. It's hard to say. But, you know, um, I have a neighbor in Atlantic Beach, Jackson, in Jacksonville, and he went to um, law school. He's in his 70s now. And he was the there were no females. Mm-hmm. You know, that was just like, there were none, mm-hmm. you know, not to mention like th- there might've been like a, a little bit of diversity, but it was all male, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, as time marches on, you get some, you get different types of diversity and age and race and gender. And, and here, I guess my point is it's right there in the capital stack from my deal to, you know, a few sure. weeks ago, Yeah, it's right there plain as day. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and the one thing I'll just add on that is there's a, a bit of a misnomer around women in finance that were risk averse, when in fact, the, the research indicates that women are really risk aware. And it actually, I think I would say to, to Hunter's question, I think that's maybe one thing about gender, that would be, I guess, a gender thing that has helped me. I think I'm generally good at being risk aware, mm-hmm. um, still willing to, to, you know, to put some of my uh, portfolio into things that are are more traditionally risky categories like startups, yeah. uh, but um, but also aware of of places where you know that risk is, and then you know managing whatever your diversification is to balance that out. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, when they're given the chance, that that makes women fairly astute at managing personal finance. All right, we're going to pivot just a little bit. I'm going to I'm going to skip past a couple of questions that I often ask. Uh, for the sake of time. Um, but as far as, as far as like goals for your program or the things you're working on now, um, I, I do like to ask if there's goals you're working on, if you want to share them, um, things, I think I have a pretty good sense of what you're passionate about, but um, <laughs> your passions and goals, maybe for the next, you know, three to five years, um, if you wanted to share. For the center, we're looking to do some reorganization uh, to potentially bring in an executive director who would be, a, I'm a faculty member, so I'm not on a 12 month, I'm no, I don't work 12 months of the year. And so we're, we're looking at our center in terms of growing it and bringing in someone who works as a staff person 12 months a year, mm-hmm. just to give us a little more of a um, human resource scaffold around all of our programs. So we were spending some time doing that, just kind of looking at kind of reorganizing the center long term and how we can best serve students and and have people here uh, working on things 12 months, connecting with our external folks, whether those are mentors or um, uh, clients for Carson Business Solutions, which is one of the programs that uh, your brother is teaching, uh, which is our student consulting class. And so we're we're hoping to put some more staff around some of those programs so that our faculty have good support in terms of bringing in um, new clients and mentors and reaching out to the external community. So I would say after 10 years, we've built out a lot of programs. Uh, we have programs for freshmen, sophomore students, all the way up to a summer accelerator program for students who really want to take their venture and, and launch it over the summer. Hmm. Um, but we really need to kind of relook at our um, the organization structure of our center. Um, as well, long-term, uh, we really would like to, you're in the 
what we jokingly call the garage-esque collaboration center, our student collaboration center, which is in the commons building here. And um, we're actually in the office of research side of the building, but we'd really love to raise some money um, to improve the space for our students. So we need to make some changes and get some new carpet and um, do some fun things with um, you know, chalkboard walls or other things um, to make it just a funner, warmer place for yeah. students to, to hang out and work on their projects and, um, We've had all kinds of great things happen in the space over the summers where students built things and 3D printed things and all that, but we just want to make it a little more warm and welcoming for them. I'll often ask about, and you're a very different guest for us. So it's like, I like to ask people about resources that they think are great for an entrepreneurial audience. It could be, it could be a podcast, a book, a YouTube channel, maybe a social media channel. Some of them are well done. Um, it might be none of those things, but our, but if they were like, resources that you think are are really good or maybe even critical for somebody trying to develop their entrepreneurial mind um places you would send people other than like your classroom and when i say send people go get this book listen to this sure. hear this guy kind of thing or gal uh lately i've been doing a couple of workshops on um the design your life which i would recommend especially young people read that book uh it's who's that by do you remember We'll look it up. Design your life. Easy it, to remember. It is. And it's from the, the folks who run the D lab at Stanford. Okay. And they, they took that, all the work that they do around design thinking at Stanford and they were approached about that. And they thought, you know, that we can apply this to people's lives. And it's a really powerful mindset way of thinking about your life. And I find for students right now, the couple of workshops I've done with students on this has just really resonated with them with the notion that their life doesn't have to be perfectly linear. And that's something I think to your point, as we kind of wrap up to be where you started, that my career journey has not been perfectly linear. And many students, they enjoy that about talking with me because they can see that they could do something different and learn what can they learn from that? What can they take from that? And then try something different. And there are sort of seasons to life as it were. And I think that's what this book really gives them the freedom to do is to prototype life experiences. So to be trying things early. So I'm always telling them to try things, even to stay at fifth fall. So they have an extra summer to do an internship somewhere different or to try something. And so that kind of mentality around trying things, you were talking about scientists and hypothesis and they're not being value judgments around, you know, you're testing something, it works, it doesn't work, but that's just information and you move on, right? To approaching life like that. Did you like it? What did you learn from it? Was it the thing that you enjoyed doing or not? And then, you know, moving in the direction of your strengths and competencies. And that's the thing I think I've really enjoyed interacting with students around that topic lately. So I'd always encourage young people yeah. to look at the Design Your Life book. Absolutely. And then uh, my favorite classic uh, podcast is the Startup Podcast, is even the first season oh. of the Startup Podcast. That uh, absolutely is my favorite. It's just so well done. And the, the journey of them starting the Startup Podcast company and there's some just great and great audio. And I think that he really captures the human side of startups in that the challenges of working with your partner, um, your, 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 your personal partner, your spouse, or your significant other during that journey, as well as working with your, your business partner and how do you share equity and, and not just the on paper, well, how do you split up the equity, but how do you talk about that and have some of those difficult conversations on the podcast? Mm -hmm. And I, I always really appreciated that he was able to capture the emotional side of startups rather than just sort of information sharing. Yeah. So those are two just off the top of my head. I'm going to check out that design your life book. So is it in your office? It is. All right. I'll take a picture of it before okay. I go. I'm an audio book guy. Do you think I can pull it? It is good. on audio books. All right. Good. Yeah. I'm an audible man. I do know how to read, uh, but I do. I prefer to take it in an audio if I can. If it's too dense, I'll buy it. And a lot of the personal development and business books have like PDFs or worksheets that go with them. Try to not race right into the next audio book. I try to stop, download, and at least, at least spend a little bit of time with the exhibits to see if they resonate. But what you said earlier... I wish it's funny. I say this because I told you earlier, I'm so fortunate that I suffered through my commercial appraisal and underwriting evaluation because it's core to my ability to make money right now. However, it cuts completely against the like design your life idea. And I, but I agree with that. I, I agree with like, you should be focusing on putting 
Work hard at what comes easy. Work hard in your core competencies. A long day will feel short. I personally believe you will live longer. You If you don't live longer, you'll at least live happier. Mm-hmm. And um, and I've also learned there's almost always someone out there that loves to do, within reason, loves to do what you don't like to do, maybe even what you hate. And um, I'm not going to say her name, but I had a close friend that was at the appraisal firm with me. And she was terrified to pick up the phone, just terrified. But she was such a good online researcher. She would comb through official records. She'd be on every county tax assessor, property appraiser website. And she would get she would get her information. She didn't want to pick up the phone. And I was like the opposite. I had no interest in diving through like 20 websites. I'm like, well, let's just call the person. <laughs> I'm just going to ask them. And so, um, but but it's taken me time to evolve and realize, you know, Work hard at what comes easy. There's other people that want to do what you don't want to do. And and, collab- and you know, I really think that if I have a, you didn't ask me my personal goals, and that's okay. I'm the host, so you know, I ask the questions, but I'll ask myself the question. Personal goal really is more collaboration. So I'm trying to, in my little silo, I'm trying to do deals that are larger, that are beyond me, and they're large enough to where it can't just be me. Because I literally, um, go back to your capital raising example, it would be uncommon for a single man or woman to go out and raise millions of dollars alone. And they're the only general partner. So they're the one running the deal. Sure. So just by going a little bit bigger in your investment and your capital raising, that almost forces you to split into a partnership, if not a third or more, and then delegating what you do. And what I love about going a little bit bigger, all of a sudden it's a team sport. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was, buying and selling an eight unit or a 28 unit or flipping an old junkie house in Jacksonville. I could do that alone. And, and it was, it worked. I made money doing it, but it's isolating. And like your happiness is probably not super high. Even when you have that temporary success, then when you succeed, no one really knows about it. You like go home and tell your wife and it's like, ah, oh. like you do it with a team, you know, there's, it's uplifting. You support each other. And sure. I, I think there's a lot there. Um, I know you're not, real big into social media, but if somebody wants to reach out and connect with you or your department within the school, where can people find you or connect with you? Sure. So for entrepreneurship, we have a great social media because I do not run it. <laughs> and uh, so Nikki uh, Garcia runs our social media and she is a broad a news broadcaster oh, great. and she uh, manages. So you can go to us at WSU underscore ENTRP on all of our social medias. We're on all the socials. And Nikki does a fantastic job of managing that for us. And she will also be emceeing the business buying competition uh, awards dinner, which is coming up a week from today. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah. I'll be back in sunny Florida, but I'm excited. <laughs> well, Marie, it has truly been a joy. Thank you for blocking this hour to spend with me and with our audience. I really do appreciate it. For those that have enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Helps us grow. Maybe one day we'll even secure a sponsor. Sky's the limit. Um, But as always, thank you for your attention. And this is the Yield Coach wrapping up. Coach Brown signing off saying, lace it up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach out.